Greetings, and welcome to Broken Boxes Podcast. In this episode, we talk about the life and current projects of Cherokee Muscogee artist and composer Elisa Harkins. From her experience of being an adopted child and learning how to practice her heritage later in life to surviving a near-fatal bike accident in Chicago, Elisa shares both foundational and vulnerable life experiences which seem to have given her strength in her path to being a practicing artist today. Elisa also reflects on her experience at grad school, noting how other artists inspired her pathway forward through insight and mentorship. We speak on how she has used language as a tool for re-entry into her heritage and as a way to access belonging and participation in community. The last part of our conversation, Elisa walks us through the durational music performance Radio 3, a project she created with other performance artists requiring an eight-hour tech rehearsal and recently toured Europe. Elisa speaks to how dance has become a thread throughout her life and has stepped back into it through recent works and collaborations as a cornerstone. She reminds us that as we strive to do things in a good way as creatives, we should also not be afraid to take a chance on bold ideas that push our comfort levels. Thank you for being here, Elisa. I know we've been in community and kind of worked together in various ways over the years, and I've really been looking forward to having you on Broken Boxes. So thanks for joining us. Oh, thank uh, you for having me. <laughs> yeah. And if you want to go ahead and introduce yourself to our audience and however you like to talk about your practice, just a little dip into who you are, where you come from, and what your work is about, and we can go from there. Sure. My name is Elisa Harkins, Elisa Harkins, uh, I'm Muscogee and Cherokee, I'm Bear Clan, and my tribal town is Coweta, and I'm from Tulsa, Oklahoma, which because of a historic U.S. Supreme Court decision is now uh, on the Muscogee Creek Reservation, so land back, <laughs> and yeah, I'm an artist, a visual artist. Uh, I'm a dancer. I am a singer. I'm an electronic music composer. And I am a curator. And I have <laughs> I have a I have a radio show too called Mahaya Radio. But a lot of the work that I do focuses on uh, indigenous music in all of its forms. And so where did art begin for you? Like, where did you find your voice through music? Because it feels like music is a thread throughout all you do, even in curating in the radio show. Where's that starting point for you? Oh. <laughs> okay, so the first time I ever sang in public, I think I was four years old. And my family went to, we. I grew up in Miami, Oklahoma, which is up in the northeast corner corner of Oklahoma. It's a really small town, but it's also the headquarters for nine different tribes. Yeah. So just imagine this really tiny rural town that has, I don't know, drug meth problems. But anyway, we went to uh, Southern Baptist Church. And so there was a Christmas pageant when I was four years old and I was the littlest angel. So I had some lines. I remember memorizing 
And like that being something that was easy for me, my mom being like, go like this. And I'm like, la, 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 you know, and (laughs) that being something that came easy to me. And so what about the electronic aspect of music for you? I know that it's personally as being a DJ and somebody who's worked in the electronic music world for probably two decades now, when I first learned about your practice, it was because you were making some pretty grimy electronic beats and then you were (laughs) singing traditional hymns over them. So like, where did that come into your life? I'm sure it wasn't at four, but like, when did you step into that (laughs) world? It's interesting because like, so I studied dance as a teenager pretty intensely and my mom really wanted me to wanted me to be a dancer and um at some point I was in New York and studying with Alvin Ailey and going to raves and I really wanted to make my own music for my dance pieces and I just felt like I just felt like it was so impossible like I couldn't meet anyone who could tell me how to do it or I I just couldn't do it. There's like that hurdle in your mind, you know, where you're like, oh, that's just something that I'll never learn. I don't know. So then like I broke my ankle and I quit dance and I studied like a lot of computer stuff, like animation and video editing and some like, you know, music, very basic music, you know, recording stuff. But it it wasn't until like 2010, I was working in advertising for like 10 years And I had like this really horrible bike accident where I was hit by a car in Chicago. This was on Michigan Avenue, which if anybody knows Chicago, that's like the busiest street (laughs) in Chicago. And um, yeah, I was hit by a car and I fell on my head. I broke seven bones in my face. I have titanium plates on my orbitals and on my chin and, uh, I had like a brain injury. I had to sort of learn how to walk again because I had been in bed for so long and was unconscious for so long. I came back to Oklahoma, to Miami, to where my parents were to recover. So like leading up to the bike accident, I was like trying to teach myself Ableton Live. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) That's a hard program too, to teach yourself. You kind of need some help sometimes with that one. Yeah, I knew I knew some bands that were using it to make live electronic music. Let's see, this band called Mahjong, they don't exist anymore. But um, those guys were helping me a little bit. And then I was like going to piano lessons and trying to learn a little music theory. And so then this bike accident happened and I couldn't talk really. My mouth was wired shut. I couldn't really eat, could only have liquids. I was in a lot of pain um, in my face. And so I just literally turned to music. And when I was at home, I found like this sheet music, this like Native American flute music. And I like put it, put the notes into Ableton and put beats onto it and started making music that way, which is, yeah, was really, I don't know. It was really fun. It was really like, um, that w- yeah, that was like the first time I'd ever like made a song that had all the parts to it, you know. So that yeah, that's how it that's how it got started. Mm. Um, and when you say you found some sheet music with Native American flute, 
what is your relationship to like indigenous music and indigenous composition and how did that come into play? Well, at that point, I didn't really know about indigenous music. And so, yeah, finding the sheet music was, yeah, not not intentional. It was just uh, my mom plays piano and there's like tons of sheet music everywhere all around the house. Mm. And I don't know if like someone just gave this to her or she bought it or something. So then I started looking for the sheet music on through Google or on the internet. And um, yeah, so now I have like a relationship with, with the sheet music because so I started like buying the sheet music that was published by Susato Press. And then now I know that it's like, uh, it's wrong. It's like um, incorrect. It's mm. like incorrectly transcribed and doesn't really, um, those songs wouldn't sound that way. How did you How did you find out that they were incorrect just through like navigating the world of indigenous music and doing your own research? Yeah, basically. Mm. Yeah, like one of them... It's like Delaware. Also, there's like some problematic things with, you know, how they say like they make it very anonymous, you know. So it's like um, it just says like Delaware POD song one number one, you know, it's just and so they don't say like where they heard it or who sang it or so then I yeah, I was like okay, so I put the notes into um, like Sibelius and listen to it. And it's like, wow, that would never be a peyote song. That is not the right tempo. It would be so much faster. Like something is really wrong here. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. I feel like the person like who was doing this project had good intentions, but it just really doesn't do... The music justice hmm. and it feels like that is a big part of the issue with american culture in relationship to indigenous culture especially like starting in like the 50s and stuff when things were beginning to be documented but through a non-indigenous lens there's so much that gets quote unquote lost in translation so it's really interesting to hear your own personal journey with like finding your way forward and out of that misinterpretation. I really appreciate you sharing that. And so what is your relationship with your own indigeneity and how how did that kind of inform and work in tandem with your uncovering around what was appropriate and inappropriate within music scores, for example, um, translated from non-indigenous people? it feels like it might be happening in tandem for you. And can you share a little bit of that part of your history? Sure. So I had a project called Pooper. <laughs> and Wait, like P-O-O-P? Yeah, poop? Pooper, <laughs> like poop. <laughs> and that was a music project that came immediately after the spike accident. So I like created these animations that would go along with um, the songs. Yeah, so Pooper really like dug into the sheet music and like made electronic music out of it. <laughs> and the songs are like kind of silly and irreverent and funny and 
campy and really bright colors, like bright neon. And I was really into, I don't know if you remember Paper Rad. Do you remember Mm -hmm. Paper? Mm -hmm. So it was like, it was like, I was trying to be like Paper Rad, but like native Paper Rad. (laughs) So like animations and like cutouts. And I had like an airbrushed uh, onesie that had like a hood on it that had like a thong. And yeah, just yeah, really, really, really silly. There was like a song called Ham Dance. And uh, it had like a dance move that you do to it. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I mean, I was working on Pooper, but then I kind of felt like I was stuck. So I went to grad school and at CalArts and they have an electronic music school there. Mm -hmm. So I studied studied electronic music composition and performance art and I got my master's in fine art there but this is when I like really started to think more critically about like the sheet music and my identity this is really funny but Sam Durant was my mentor and I don't know if anyone knows uh the history of Sam Durant um he did a piece at the Walker called Scaffold that was just really um, tone deaf and really offensive and uh, was taken apart and burned, which is, you know, totally okay with me. Um, I don't know. Maggie Nelson wrote something like, that's not my kind of activism to like censor someone or, you know, basically she said something like that. And I'm like, whatever, Maggie, like, (laughs) I'm like, that is my brand of activism. (laughs) But um, anyway, Sam was my mentor and uh, he was actually a very good mentor. And he was like, you need to get like I was adopted. So I think I was very young. My parents were like, do you want to get enrolled? And I was like, you know, like, no, why would I do that? And, you know, like had no idea like what that even meant. And Mm. Sam was like, you need to get enrolled. Uh, He's like, you could go to prison for making native art or your work could like be taken out of shows and la la la. And so my adoptive parents didn't really want me to get enrolled anyway, because they didn't want to, they didn't want me to find out any information about my biological family and my biological family had a closed adoption so made it extra hard to get the information like at the time I had like a forged birth certificate that said that I was born in Miami and that my adoptive mom gave birth to me so yeah so you know we had to get a lawyer and like on my adoption papers it says it has this really weird language where it's like she's Cherokee Creek so we were like, what does, what? we're like, oh, you're, like you're Cherokee. So my whole life I grew up like you're Cherokee, you're Cherokee. Cause it says on your adoption papers. And then like, I don't know, after some time, like we were trying to get me enrolled and the Cherokee, you know, enrollment office, they kept saying like, no, sorry, nothing. We can't find anything. And I was like, I was getting like really bummed out about it. And um, 
finally my dad my adoptive dad because he was in charge of all of this I wasn't allowed to like do any of this work even though I was a grown woman yeah my dad like did all of this work but finally he was like oh my gosh like she's Muskogee we got we have to send you know her original birth certificate and all that information to the Muskogee nation and then it came back and it was like yeah she's enrolled with the Muskogee nation so that was that was crazy that was and really intense and very emotional for me but but yeah but while I was in grad school Wendy Redstar did a studio visit with me so we were talking about pooper and I'm like, yeah, you know, like when I retire pooper, I'm trying to figure out like what's next. And she, <laughs> she said this really, really funny thing. I really like Wendy and like how her sense of humor comes out, but she, she was like, I don't know about this like pan Indian thing you got going on. And she's like, how can you like make it more specific? And I like went, I like went to my studio and I was like thinking about it. And then I was like, oh my gosh, I was like our language, our Cherokee language, of course. So then I was like, oh my gosh. And I was like teaching myself Cherokee and which is uh, very strange (laughs) to think about now, but um. I am like, wow, that's cool that I did that. That's really ballsy. <laughs> <laughs> that's wild yeah. that you had that that lack of knowing. And here you are in a space where you are being influenced by white artists, by contemporary indigenous artists who are very connected to place. Like Wendy is so involved in like the research of her place within her people in her community. It's just really interesting to learn kind of all of these threads that come in to inform someone like you who was removed from community and how how those all kind of became stepping stones for you to find yourself. Yeah, going to grad school was really great for me. A lot of people came out from the internet and wanted to be friends so like Wendy was one person who was really like a strong mentor for me and then like Dwayne Linkletter reached out to me on the internet and then I started dancing for his wife Tanya and then that's how I met Hanako and then that's how we started Radio 3 and just crazy um but yeah after grad school it's like trying to work in advertising and my last job I was working for the NFL and I was like senior graphic designer but I was making 25 an hour I'm like man that's brutal like how are you gonna live in LA on 25 an hour and then my my friend died my friend she drowned but she was missing for like two weeks and like uh me and my friends we all kind of went a little crazy. So um, I went back to Miami, Oklahoma to stay with my parents and kind of get some grounding, I guess. But that when I was at my parents' place, that's when I would fly to Canada to work with Tanya. And that's when I met Hanako. And yeah, we so we worked on two different pieces for Tanya. And oh yeah, I met Laura Ortman 
working on a piece with Tanya. I just ended up staying in Oklahoma and I be, I got into the, I had a fellowship with the Tulsa Artist Fellowship. So mm. I ended up staying, which wasn't, you know, I really intended to go back to LA and like be a, you know, quote unquote artist, but staying uh, has been really fruitful, really amazing. Mm. Um, so when I, when I moved to Tulsa, I started taking uh like online Cherokee lessons and in-person Muskogee lessons you know talking about like how to reconnect with your community taking language lessons is like for me has been an incredible way to reconnect with my community because you go and you meet all different kinds of people definitely meet elders and people bring food and traditional food and people share knowledge and then they'll invite you to an event or a ceremony or all different kinds of things and um yeah it's like that's like been really amazing for me yeah it's so beautiful to hear how the community that you are enrolled with has accepted your journey of becoming and knowing when you didn't grow up in the culture. And how has your family reacted to that? And how has that felt in your heart? Huh, wow, that's really a loaded question. That's, <laughs> that's cool. It's, yeah, it's just vulnerable, maybe. But I think that that's the kind of things that we all grapple with in belonging, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really felt like for a really long time that it almost felt like I had to like keep it secret or separate from my adoptive family. Yeah. I don't know. Like I go to like a sweat ceremony and I definitely wasn't telling my family about that because they would like think that that was anti-christian or you know mm. so i yeah i wasn't telling them about that and then um but were they yeah, okay that... with the art making part were they okay with like using indigeneity in your art practice but like not actually like connecting with the culture like that's the part that i always wonder about within reconnection stories hmm yeah they were okay with it uh yeah, I mean, well, the thing that's funny is that, like, my mom always wanted me to be a dancer. So she, in high school, drove me to Tulsa, which is 78 miles from Miami. So she would drive me to ballet at Tulsa Ballet. And the teacher there, she was indigenous. She was Peoria. And she was one of the five moons who were the... Native American ballerinas. And so my mom would drive me an hour and a half, two hours, sit in the car, wait for me to come out of ballet like two hours later and drive two hours back to Miami like every day, like Monday through Friday and then wow. early on Saturdays. Yeah, it was like, I can't believe that we did that. But that's how, that's how much she cared and how supportive she was. So then when I, you know, when I went to New York and I was like, this isn't for me, you know, I'm, sh I know she was like really, really disappointed and yeah, 
I have no idea why Tanya invited me to like be one of her dancers, but that just changed everything. And then Mm. like I started working on this dance piece with Hanako and Zoe and which uses my music where I'm singing in Cherokee and Muskogee with these pop songs. And um, it's like, that's what my mom wanted for me or that's what she envisioned that I was going to do. And in some ways I'm like, man, I wish I would have like really had faith and trusted that as a youngster, mm. but <laughs> there's, I don't know. It's just a different path I, I went on. Yeah. And everything happens for a reason. You know, I think that the, the spaces with which you're dipping your toes into like require a lot of protocol and a lot of intention and finding yourself or going home, so to speak, in certain ways and the taboos around that and the pride in that and the lack of pride in that, that all takes time to unravel. So I think that you probably did it exactly the way you needed to, to be strong enough to um, hold the spaces that you're being required to hold now. Yeah, exactly. Because um, I feel like I didn't have that confidence Mm. until I was enrolled and I knew where I came from and I knew about my biological family. Like I didn't know who I was. Yeah. It wasn't until like I knew who I was that I could like really have confidence and like really even like come out on stage and like really feel like you know, I know exactly who I am and I know why I'm doing this. And I know the, yeah, exactly the intention behind it. Mm. And so after, I mean, you're still doing radio three, right? Mm -hmm. You're still performing that work. Um, what, where are you thinking of heading to next musically and with this performative work that you're doing? Well, okay. So yeah, we just got off tour and it was awesome. It was really amazing. We had sold out shows in Montreal. We had sold out shows in Stockholm. We had a really great show in Birmingham, UK. While we were on tour, I had the idea to make a prequel <laughs> <laughs> to, to Radio 3. So yeah, we're trying to yeah make a new piece. Yeah, I'm working on some new music. Yeah, I don't know. Tossing around some ideas. We really want to add some sort of like curriculum to the piece because here in the States, Indigenous history isn't taught. And so I think that it would be really good to have like a website with some sort of like curriculum on it where teachers, uh, grade school teachers, high school teachers could go and use that to teach students. And if not in the classroom, then maybe just give them the link to the website or. That's really interesting because just working um, in supporting Chinupa, you know, in his practice and him being a visual artist um, and you all know each other, you've worked together. We get a lot of requests from academic spaces to like expand on his practice and the theories that he's unpacking in his work. And they're actually creating curriculum around contemporary artists, you know, so 
you developing that to have it accessible will just blow it open even further, you know, because there does need to be attending to and a readdressing of the way that Indigenous communities are related to in academia. And I think that your your finger's right on the pulse there. So I'm really excited to hear that you're thinking about kind of coaching that through your art practice because it's already being pulled out of everyone's art practice anyway. So might as well like lead it a little, right? Have some agency in that. Yeah, uh, we just had like a music conference here, which was really fun. Oh my gosh. And then I found out, I found out at the music conference that I'm the first person to ever use Cherokee language in a contemporary song or pop song. I'm the first person. I was like, what? Wow, that's <laughs> profound. Yeah. They were like, well, we have our our hymns and we have like um, you know, stomp dance songs or ceremonial songs or flute songs, but like there's no contemporary songs. Uh, so like Jeremy Charles was like, Elisa was the first. And I'm like, okay, can I put that in my bio? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is um in the song Pony, do you, are you using Cherokee in that song? That's Muskogee. Okay. So what's the difference? Um, and please excuse my ignorance because I'm not Native American. What is the difference in dialect between Muskogee Creek and Cherokee? And like, where do they overlap and how do they inf- inform each other? Well, they're two different, they're from two different language families. So Cherokee is Iroquoian and Muskogee is Muskogeean, but there is some overlap. I'm not sure why. I don't know if it's just because of the, the communities like migration and sharing of knowledge. Yeah, just we're so close together. The word fox is the same. Jula our V character. Um, so in Muskogee, the V character is like a uh sound. And mm. in uh, Cherokee, when they p- put something phonetically, sometimes, I, w- I wouldn't say all the time, but I've seen Cherokee written phonetically where it uses a V for the uh sound. But yeah, Cherokee has its own syllabary, which was uh, created by Sequoia in order to have like a printed language because there mm-hmm. wasn't a printed language before that in order to like have a newspaper. Um, the relationship to Cherokee, you said that you were, you became enrolled with Muskogee Creek, right? So what's your relationship mm-hmm. to Cherokee folks now? Are you, are you Cherokee or do you have that heritage or are you just like really connected to it because that was your starting point? Um, I am Cherokee and I do have Cherokee family, but it, it does, because I am enrolled Muskogee, it does feel like, uh, I don't know. It feels like you have to be more one than the other, which is very pretty common here in Oklahoma because everybody is like mixed, mm-hmm. mixed native. So like, you know, someone who's Osage and Muskogee, they'll just practice like the Osage ways and not the Muskogee ways, which is interesting. But mm. um, yeah, I mean, there is some crossover though, like mm-hmm. uh, our stomp, our stomp dances. You know, I go to um, the Cherokee stomp dance grounds sometimes. Um, but well, also um, in Oklahoma, there's like a law that 
I, I don't know when this law started, but I think around the seventies, but you can only be enrolled in one tribe. So you can that's be... pretty much across the nation too. I mean, I, that's what I've noticed just from like family, extended family and stuff. Like you gotta choose. <laughs> it's, it's just the colonial way. It's kind of fucked up. Right. But, mm-hmm. I'm just wondering and asking about it because of the, you, you saying that you first came to uncovering like, like uncovering relationship to indigeneity through language, through Cherokee, but you've maintained nurturing that as you've learned more about your heritage and become into relationship with being enrolled in a different tribe. And I think that's really interesting and beautiful to like maintain those relationships, you know? Yeah. I mean, it is, it is challenging though. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, uh, my cousin is the gardener at the Cherokee Seed Bank and she does a lot of really amazing work and try to like keep up with everything that she's doing. Um, Oh yeah, I may, I'm hoping to do a a collaboration with Kaylin Faye Barnowski. I don't know Um, who that is. Yeah, or maybe um, I do, but I'm just really bad with names. <laughs> she, she, I think her her music project is just Kaylin Fay. So she's a Cherokee citizen. She's also Cherokee and Muscogee, but she is. She says, "Oh, I'm you know, pra- I'm more practicing Cherokee." So we we're trying to collaborate on a new song. So she does a lot of like singer songwriter guitar, like sort of country even so we want to do like a like a country pop crossover song where like you know she's on the guitar and like singing and then it's like you know and (laughs) come in and there's like dance moves and beats and some yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah wow that's really cool I just thinking about that and your relationship to collaboration and how a lot of that is all genders, but it feels like you really do maintain long-term collaborative relationships with other women too. So what is it? I just want your reflections on what it's like to be a woman working in music and in electronic music, because even from my own experience, it's a very male dominated space. And so do you want to share any reflections on how that's been for you? Hmm. You know, I guess because of the pandemic and everything, I just feel very isolated. <laughs> so it's, You're like, to... it's me in this room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think it took me a really long time to trust men too. Mm. Um, there's someone I work with very pretty exclusively um mark kirkendall oh you met mark oh yeah at the um wild mountain no um is yeah, it wild, yeah, wild mountain, mountain. Yeah, yeah he's so cool so it it took me like a really long time you know i was working with mark but i still didn't like completely like trust him but now i don't know i was just a bunch of things happened i don't know my mom passed and he was like really helpful and really sweet during that time. And I was like, I'm just having all these problems with my set and I need help. 
Um, I'm like, the microphone is feeding back like crazy. Like, he's like, I will help you. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, it's just the high end frequencies. We just need to roll them off. Um, mm. Yeah, I don't know. Um, and maybe just reflections in general about being a female artist. And if that even is something that you've come up against as a negative or a block, you know, I, I feel like our generation may be benefiting from the work that the previous generation of female artists have done to kind of pave the way for us to have a little bit more of like visibility and equality within the arts and music world. But I am curious about people who are practicing across genres of how they relate and reflect to being a woman in the arts today. Right. I guess I'm not sure because I don't know how to like see myself or what my progress or where I am in the in the music world or the art world or the dance world. Um and I guess I I maybe it was rude of me. I didn't even ask if you identify as a woman. And oh. I just assumed. So excuse me. And maybe that's where I should start. Is that a, a way you identify in your body? I do identify as a woman, yes. Yeah, it's interesting. During the pandemic, Hanako came out as non-binary. And I think that that's really amazing. And then that comes out in Radio 3, too. So I don't know. There's a lot of this, like, new kind of confidence that comes out. And then, yeah, actually, yeah. And then Hanako, I don't know. I'm just so amazed at how they're not afraid to ask for things, not afraid to, like, make a comment or say something um, like, oh, that doesn't sound right, or you need to fix that, or can you do X, Y, Z, which is, you know, it's like teaching me that I need to make sure that I ask for things, like how I was saying with Mark, you know, like I was afraid to even ask him to like, help me fix my, my live set. Mm -hmm. And it really took like, my mom passing for me to be to be like, well, a lot of things in your life are like uncomfortable or don't feel right. Or it feels like I should be attended to sometimes. I don't, there's something about like when your mom passes that it's like, this is the most uncomfortable, difficult thing. And like all the other things that I thought were hard are not hard, you know? Mm. So like, I, you know, I should be able to like ask for the things that I need and like not feel like hurt or upset when like people aren't like coming to me and asking me what I need yeah and then yeah as a as a female artist it's like it is hard to like ask for all the things that you need and like point out all the things that people are doing wrong and but yeah this tour with Radio 3 was really eye-opening for me and uh so we do like an eight-hour tech rehearsal <laughs> Mm -hmm. which is very long mm -hmm. that also gives us the time and the space to make sure everything is perfect yeah we require that of our our td our technical director our lighting person our sound person you know just be like yeah i'm asking you to 
take eight hours out of your day and I'm paying you for it. So why should I feel bad or feel some way about it? You know, just, Mm -hmm. yeah. I've been doing a lot of unpacking like interpersonally with my partner Chinupa around like gender roles and how we all can do better and also like patriarchy and how it's systemic and like affects all genders um well it's white supremacy yeah exactly and that's like what the root of it is and how we all hold that and carry it in our bodies um either as a oppressor or oppressed and how we flip through those those different labels and ways of being depending on where we are and how to be accountable to that mess that we're all in that system. Right. And uh, something as simple as like asking for what your needs are without feeling like you're being extractive is very much an implication of patriarchy, which sits under white supremacy. Right. And so I think that all of those little trigger points are just great to be aware aware of and I love it that the person that you co-work with is able to have the confidence and strength to speak up about those ideas of what's wrong and right that sits in their body that hopefully can shift that paradigm further and how to do that in a loving way too you know even when you are working in spaces where people are being paid and they're dedicating their time and respect to you cuz i've i've toured a lot also and i just got back from tour and sometimes you know people are tired or cranky and you have like a deadline and an end goal and you all have to find a way to like get some really hard work done and find joy in it <laughs> and it's so hard <laughs> it can be very complicated uh, especially when as women, we're often socialized to make ourselves small or just deal with it. But as an artist, uh, your work reflects you. And so you can't, you can't disappear. You have to like really get your needs met. And so I just love your reflection about all of that and just also learning from your peers. And it makes me a little bit curious about Radio 3. (laughs) I know that you gave me the record, but I'm like, what? And I've seen like videos of it. We had, we hosted one for settlement in the UK, but I'm like, what goes on like (laughs) for an eight hour rehearsal? Like, can you walk us through what the performance is like? Sure. Well, okay. So it is, it's an hour long dance piece. So Hanako is based in Montreal. Zoe is based in Stockholm. She's actually the Dean of the school of dance. in Stockholm and Hanako is a curator at CCOV and a dancer yeah I don't I'm really like I don't really know how all this happened we we did like two different dance residencies together and developed some phrases I already had like a you know I already had like my wampum performance so I already had some choreography ready to like bring to the piece so yeah it's yeah, we have like a lighting director, we have like a fog machine. <laughs> but it's it starts out and it's in silence and we're wearing all white and I have like a seminal patchwork on my on my neck with like fringe and uh Hanako has some fringe on her white jumpsuit and Zoe doesn't have any fringe. Yeah, so we are kind of doing these very quiet Um, We call them monuments or sculptures. And it looks like it's kind of a joke, actually. 
about minimalism. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate you sharing that. (laughs) So when I see it, I'll be like, oh, there's this. Well, you'll you'll get it because uh, one of my friends, uh, Lucas Wrench, he's like, oh, my gosh, at the beginning, you just think like this is just this insufferable minimalist dance piece that I'm going to have to sit an hour through, you know, because <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're not looking at the audience. We're doing all this like modern dance, like almost tropes, basically. So then we're we're on the floor and I like crawl over to the middle of the stage and then a microphone comes down and I grab the microphone and start singing. And it's sort of like, it is like a minimalist sort of like house, house track. And um, it's called bear hunting song. Mm-hmm. And so like, I'm kind of in like a spotlight with like, all this like purple and pink they're doing like some like crazy modern dance and they're like kind of in their own bubble but then when the song ends they like come and join me and then we kind of do these backup dancer moves and I leave the stage and then they have like three duets and I made the music for the duets they don't have any vocals and they are kind of like going through dance history and then uh when I come out on stage it's sort of like we're in the future and it's like indigenous futurism pop concert yay and so I come out and I'm singing in Muskogee and I have a vocoder robot voice like doing these dance moves and like wearing this futuristic regalia I have like a black regalia and then I have a white regalia. So the black regalia is like a Cherokee tear dress. And then the white regalia is like a Creek dress. And we want to like put in a costume change at some point, but we're trying to figure that out so that like I come out, I'm in the Creek dress, but then, so we go through like, let's see, there's Jodi OS. Oh, I do Pawn, which is a song in Cherokee. And then then we do Pony, which is in Muskogee. And then uh, Peyote is the last song. And Peyote is just kind of like a little bit more dark. And it really, mm-hmm. like the black regalia really fits well. So we're we're like, how can we put in like a, like a quick costume change? <laughs> you need like tear away <laughs> pants. <laughs> So we're saying oh we're, we were like well it makes you uh rethink the meaning of tear dress i love nerding out on like set and costume changes in theater so maybe another time we can nerd out on that together because that's so cool i love that that is like such a great um kind of synopsis of of what happens because yeah listening to your music over the past I guess it's been like two years kind of really getting to know your music and including Radio 3, there is like certain threads and the way you talked about certain aspects of Radio 3 throughout this conversation and how there are like narrative moments that you all are addressing. Like, I just really appreciate you walking through the visual language of it all. Yeah, I guess like the pandemic was really good for the piece. I don't know, like working on the piece, like 
when I, <laughs> when we first started working on it, I brought like drone basically, which wasn't very generous on my part. And it took like a lot of thinking for me to be like, oh, let's just use my songs Mm-hmm. because they're not indigenous and it was really I don't know I felt like I didn't know what was appropriate and so I was starting off with like this super minimalist drone music dance piece that was just the same garbage <laughs> which is great for like five minutes but an hour <laughs> like I guess put some house beats in there <laughs> yeah exactly and it was really great they've really leaned into putting me in the foreground and then they're in the background. And, you know, I didn't know that they would enjoy that <laughs> either. Cause mm-hmm. I didn't, I always, I thought that they would want to always be in the front because in dance and art and music, there's always this sense of competition mm-hmm. and like, unfortunately, yeah, we're trying to dismantle that right now. that's wild I love that they did that and is that because of you being the mastermind of the project or because of your indigeneity or like what is the reason that you became the forefront of the project I mean I wouldn't say that I'm the mastermind I would say that Hanako is the mastermind of the project Mm -hmm. Mm um yeah Hanako is really like the linchpin of the project and like mm. really like designed our tour and yeah really is just super thoughtful about a lot of things really thoughtful about a lot of details so no it, yeah it's because uh because I'm indigenous and they they wanted I don't, well so Zoe worked with the knife on their tour at, as one of their dancers which is just like a huge dance production where the dancers are like playing all the instruments and lip syncing or singing all the parts. So Zoe kind of had some backup dancer arsenal uh, and experience. And so, yeah, they just really wanted to like support me and put me in the forefront as an act of solidarity, Mm. as an act of, I don't know, they keep saying like, oh, we're like weaving this wampum belt because we have like these this marley on the floor and the mar- we have like three marleys and then there's there's like a line. There's like a two lines on the floor and they're like, it's the two-row wampum and we're like weaving the wampum belt on the floor and we're like supporting you and like, you know. Oh, that's beautiful. Speaking of support, do you have any advice or reflections that or like kind of ideas that you feel are kind of critical to share with people of the next generation or even to share with people existing in the art world in institutional spaces who are trying to do better you know trying to support artists like yourself better and be more accountable or both you know like I just I just kind of want to Uh, dip into your reflections and like what we can share forward in this space right it's interesting because like when we did radio three in stockholm the institution was sort of like we think that 
this should be a model for how to be an ally or how to support. But I think that that is dangerous too, to have any kind of models because the way that the way that it came about was just so organic. And also <laughs> at one point I left the project, I did like a George Harrison and was like, I'm out of here. And, <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah, I had to be persuaded to come back to the piece. And as much as that seems like not ideal, it was part of the process to show that I wasn't feeling supported so I don't know I guess for like somebody somebody coming up I I would just say like you know really don't be afraid to ask for what you need and what supports you even like showing anger or being upset like that may feel really bad to you but it may be necessary for the project or the piece um to move forward yeah also don't be afraid to you know uh you know accept apologies <laughs> as well <laughs> what about yeah. apologizing yourself do you ever find yourself having to apologize like especially when you're working in these spaces of what can almost be considered taboo as you're finding your footing as an indigenous woman in spaces that you weren't raised in? Like, how do you accept apologies, but also like apologize and do better? Like, what are, what are some ways you've done that? Yeah. I'm like going, I'm getting my certificate in Muscogee language at college of Muscogee nation. So that is a space where I try to be really, um, reverent and careful and yeah supportive of my language teacher and um there's also like a Muskogee gardener there and uh yeah I guess there are times when I don't know yeah I'm trying to think of a specific time when I had to apologize but it is sort of like knowing Mm, just how to be like in a good way I guess mm -hmm. yeah yeah I think that's that in itself that like humbleness of knowing that you're not going to always get it right but having the passion to work towards getting it right crosses between both of those spaces of holding people accountable and being accountable yourself I think that it's not about specificity as much as it is about like knowing how to be in a good way I really I think that you kind of nailed it right there and that shifts between communities like I'm sure you don't act the same way you do in your Muscogee language class as you do when you're on tour like there's different protocols right but you need to understand how to be in community with those people you're holding space with right yeah totally and then yeah I guess for like institutions and that kind of thing I, I would look at College of Muskogee Nation as a model um, even though I just said models are bad <laughs> <laughs> a starting point maybe a jumping off point <laughs> yeah maybe just something to look into it's really really amazing um, so the school is free for any Indigenous students, they have free housing, they have free food, they're taught like plant knowledge, language classes, and uh, 
the thing that really stuck out to me is that um, everyone, uh, it's mandatory for everyone to have Title IX training. So if something happens, if you see someone being bullied or harassed or, you know, attacked sexually or any of these things that, you know, you can go to anyone on campus. So you can go to like the janitor or you can go to the librarian and say like, I saw someone do this thing or someone did this thing to me and then it will be addressed. So it's just, I was like, man, if I had kids, <laughs> I would send them there because I would know that they're safe. You know, it's like, it feels like family there. Basically everyone mm. treats each other in this like, almost like everyone's related. So yeah, just really an amazing place. It's beautiful that you have a place like that in your life, you know, and yeah, I definitely want to call that into all people because it's, it's rare and it's something that we really need to like repair the white supremacist colonialism that we find ourselves in uh, wrapped in a bow of capitalism. <laughs> so it sounds like this is really dismantling that in a lot of ways. And so I really appreciate you kind of sharing that as a model to look to look towards. Yeah, not a model, but just <laughs> just an example or yeah. And something that's in flux too. I'm sure that they didn't just like get it right right away. You know, it takes time to learn all the tools that you need for your community, you know, and every every community is different. And that's what's so complicated about it, working in the larger art world in America is that so often many of our peers come from these very specific communities with very specific upbringings and like complexities within their lineage and their stories. And then they're put into the art world and then all of a sudden they represent like all Native American people or all Polynesian people or, you know, and it's just like, well, yes but not at all, actually. <laughs> so like, I always think about that when thinking about the next generation, like what are they going to come up against as far as having to like speak on behalf of communities and like, how can we help them to do better or have an easier way with that? Yeah. I mean, I think that having that responsibility can be really off-putting though and can really like deter people from wanting to make art or wanting to be participate in the art world and then yeah I mean also like the fear of like being wrong I'm just so impressed that my younger self just taught herself Cherokee and like made a song and just wasn't even gonna ask permission or wasn't even gonna you know just just did it and I you know I kind of think that yeah I think that there there should be like that fearlessness but then yes there should also be like the caretaking that happens as well but yeah the art world is just so crazy it's just such a crazy uh competitive and cutthroat place that I don't know I think it's more important just to like nurture yourself and you know, be fearless and not have like carry so many negative self-critical thoughts. I think that's a great note to end on. So thank you so much 
for being a part of the project, for being in community with myself and with Chinupa and and in everything that we've done together over the years. You know, it's just really nice to see your ethic and your work ethic and also just the way that you think critically about the space you take up and the spaces you don't take up. And yeah, I just really, I really admire the way that you're approaching your practice. And I think that people will really benefit from listening to this conversation. And yeah, I just wanted to thank you. And it's been really a joy getting to know you over these years. And I look forward to more time to be in community with you as the pandemic shifts and we all get to be out on the road. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really great to talk to you. Those were some really tough questions. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Don't mess around. Well, I'm also curious, you know, I think that that's something that I love about this conversational type of podcast is that we get to form a deeper relationship and I get to learn more about you and by default the world as well. So thank you so much, Elisa. Aw, thank you so much, Ginger. See you.